0: Hear now the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done truly i say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our god endures forever One of the things that I've learned in the course of my life and continue to learn is um, a principle that is somewhat counterintuitive. Uh, For the sake of our discussion this morning, I'm going to call it the fallacy of self-protection. The fallacy of self-protection. It often plays out like this. I find that when I am reluctant to do something that is hard because I am fearful or dreading some particularly difficult thing that will come with having to do this hard thing, I often find that avoiding it doesn't solve the problem, that trying to avoid those negative consequences don't actually mean that the negative consequences I'm able to keep at arm's length by avoiding doing the hard thing. I actually find that the thing that I dread actually becomes much worse. It doesn't become better. It becomes much worse. So let me give you an example, a few examples of this. Uh, uh, Sometimes I don't want to exercise because I am tired. I'm tired. Don't want to exercise. That's going to require a lot of energy, and so I'm just going to sit and just sit. Well, that doesn't actually fix the problem. I don't gain more energy. I become less energetic, I become bogged down and sluggish. You can't really hoard energy as much as you wish you could sometimes. Here's another example. If I avoid a difficult, awkward conversation because I'm worried that it's going to be hard, the situation doesn't just magically get better or vanish or somehow solve itself it actually becomes worse. The problem doesn't go away. It actually builds in the dread that I am fearing all the time that I'm putting it off. Or if there's a challenging task that I have to do in some aspect of work or in life, I don't want to do it, that seems hard. I find that the task, again, doesn't become better. The problem doesn't go away. And in fact, especially if there is a deadline involved, the task becomes increasingly hard the longer that I put it off. In all of these cases, I'm trying to protect myself from something that I think will have bad consequences. I think that will be negative. I think that will be a problem. I dread something. To protect myself, I try to avoid it. And yet by avoiding the thing that I dread, I don't get rid of the dread. The dread actually grows. The problem actually grows. On the other hand, if I just go exercise, whether I feel like it or not, I end up gaining more energy. If I enter into that hard conversation, well, the relationship becomes much better. My whole outlook on life improves. If I sit down to actually do the difficult task, well, what do you know? It actually is kind of a fun challenge. Aren't I actually having fun here and the thing got done? I think this is fairly natural in life. We want to avoid hard things. We try to put them off, and yet the longer we put them off, the worse they become. Jesus here is talking about I think something like this. We'll call this maybe a fallacy of spiritual self-protection That when we're wanting life capital L life Well, the most natural thing to do is avoid something we dread namely death We don't want to die to ourselves We want to pursue our lives here lowercase l lives to the fullest, and so we do everything we can to try to put off the death that Jesus is calling to in in this passage. It's a form of spiritual self-protection, but the problem doesn't actually go away. The problem doesn't get better. In fact, it becomes worse. Jesus is saying here that if we would protect ourselves from everlasting death, the paradoxical truth is that we must die here and now. Our big idea as we enter into one of the most taxing, paradoxical statements in all of the gospel is this that we enter Jesus' kingdom through Jesus' cross. We enter Jesus' kingdom through Jesus' cross. Three parts to our sermon this morning. Uh, First of all, taking up our cross, taking up our cross. Second, treasuring our lives, treasuring our lives. Third, tasting the kingdom. Tasting the kingdom. So first of all, taking up our cross in verses 24 through 25. Notice in 24 that it starts with this word, then. It's a transitional word, Uh, then. It's tying this passage to the previous section. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at the previous section, we read that Jesus was beginning to teach his disciples that he must suffer many things. Look back at chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. The point of the previous section was to emphasize the necessity that Jesus must suffer these things, that he must be crucified, that he must die, and only then would he rise again on the third day. Well, in this section, then, now, as we transition into this section, Jesus is talking about another necessity. It's not a necessity that faces him, although it is based on that, built upon that, connected to the necessity that he must suffer. It is rather that we must suffer. It's necessary for Jesus to suffer. Now he says it is necessary for us to suffer. And so Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me. Now stop there for just a moment. Understand that this idea of coming after Jesus is another way of talking about discipleship. To be a disciple of a master, of a rabbi, of a teacher, meant to follow after this teacher, to walk after him, to learn from him, to watch him to imitate your life, to base your life off of what he was doing, to pattern everything you were doing off of what your master was doing. This is the idea of coming after a teacher. It's the language of discipleship. And discipleship requires imitation by definition. But now Jesus is drawing a bright red line. The discipleship imitates Jesus necessarily in the area of suffering. And so in the rest of verse 24, Jesus gives us three commands, three imperatives. Now, it's a little tricky to translate exactly what Jesus says in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, and the way that this is often translated in English, like it is here in the English Standard Version, is let him deny himself first and take up his cross second and follow me third. It's this language of let him that doesn't quite capture the full force of this imperative, this command here. You see, in English, if I'm going to command you something, I just tell you to do it. Do this. Do that. I'm speaking directly to you. In Greek, there's a way to do this in, 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 in uh, not speaking directly to someone, but speaking about someone who fits a particular condition. That is, if anyone would come after me, this is what this person must do. It's again the language of necessity. It's not sort of a wish. Well, let him do this. Let him do that. Let them eat cake. It's not that kind of an idea. It is the person who would follow me must die. Just as Jesus must suffer many things. That's one way of expressing necessity. This is another way of expressing necessity. If anyone would come after me, let him first of all deny himself. Now, we tame this idea. If you want to lose a little weight, you've got to deny yourself and not eat the cake or the ice cream or pick your poison. Jesus is talking about a much more fundamental denial than the delay of gratification in life. He's saying you have to actually assess everything that your natural self is bent toward. Every inclination, every instinct you have, the fallacy of spiritual self-protection and on and on. And you have to actually deny that instinct in your soul. All that you naturally want, all that you naturally desire, all that you naturally think, all that you naturally do, you've got to deny that. You will not find capital L life at the end of a life that is pursued doing whatever you want to do that person must deny himself that person who would follow jesus second must take up his cross now again we tame this language well that's just my cross to bear in life my car is a little old my job is a little hard my family's a little difficult these are just crosses that i must bear in life understand the image of bearing a cross was the image of someone carrying the instrument of their execution this is someone bearing the hangman's noose through the town while they're spit upon, derided. This is someone who would be dragging an electric tear while they are being jeered, beaten, hated, reviled. In the first century, this was an instrument upon which the man would be nailed, hung naked until he bled out and actually typically drowned in his own bodily fluids because he wasn't able to pull himself up Not strong enough to pull himself up to be able to get another breath. That's the instrument of what it means to take up his cross. Not mildly suffer or be inconvenienced, but to die. To die in the here and now. To die to your natural sense. And then Jesus says, this person must follow me. Now this third imperative, this person must follow me... really important because it shows that the suffering that Jesus is talking about is not random. It is not meaningless. It's also not masochistic. This isn't just an enjoyment of suffering for the sake of suffering. But it's also not the kind of white-knuckled stoicism. I've just got to grip my teeth and get through this. The suffering that Jesus is talking about is again coming after Jesus, following Jesus. It is connected to Christ's own sufferings. Now, why would this be necessary? Why would Jesus insist that we must suffer? Maybe you're here today hearing this sermon and you're wondering, what on earth am I doing here if this language is all about suffering? Well, in the next three verses, verse 25, 26, and 27, if you you look at them really quickly, notice that each of them start with that little word for, F-O-R. Each of these, and that's a really good translation, each of these is giving us an instruction, or not an instruction, an explanation. It's answering the question, why would this be necessary? And we have three answers, again, once in 25, once in 26, and again in 27. So we're going to look at these one at a time. In the first of these four clauses, again, giving an explanatory answer to the reason why, the first thing that Jesus says in verse 25 is this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, there's a paradox here. Jesus is saying the only way to have capital L life is not the way you think it is. It's not by pursuing living this life in whatever way you feel that you should be living it. The only way to have capital L life, life that is abundant, life that is satisfying, life that is worth living is by dying. What Jesus is doing here is he's cutting right through that fallacy of spiritual self-protection. We don't want to die. We don't want to miss out on life. But Jesus says, if that's all you're asking, where can I find life? And grabbing at it, grasping at it, groping for it, wherever you think you might find life, you will never find it. Whoever would save his life, will lose it. That's what you're bent toward, losing your life. But there's another promise here. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, what's interesting is Jesus has already said this in the Gospel of Matthew. If you look back at Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, Jesus has already talked about this idea of taking up your cross and following him. Matthew 10 verse 38, Jesus says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus has already said this, but there's a huge difference between what he said earlier and what he says now. Namely, Jesus has just said that he must suffer many things and die. If you're his disciple listening to this and you heard the earlier conversation and you're thinking, well, that's a a very lovely, very uplifting, warm spiritual metaphor. We've got to die. What a lovely thought. And now you're thinking, oh, you were serious. You're actually going to die. I've got to die. This is for real. This is not a drill. This is for real. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He must suffer many things. We who would come after Him and follow Him must deny ourselves and take up our cross, and we must follow Him into His sufferings. You know, the the fundamental error of this fallacy of spiritual protection is to think that we would find this capital L, life in the abundance, life everlasting, in and through the normal pursuits of our natural lives in our living, in our growing, in our eating, in our drinking, in our meeting, in our marrying, in our everything that we might do, our buying, our selling, everything that we do in our lives, we think that's where life, capital L, abundant life, will be found. What Jesus is doing is saying, what if that's not true? What if, in fact, at the end of that rainbow, you're chasing that rainbow, at the end of that rainbow, you don't find life, you actually find death? And you say, how can this be? I'm pursuing life to the fullest. And Jesus says, if you would have life, you can't get it by pursuing it directly. Have you ever played with one of those Chinese finger traps? Uh, One of those little mesh tubes, and you put your fingers in it. And the goal of the game is to pull your fingers out of the Chinese finger trap. Well, if you've ever used this, you know that the more you pull your fingers out, trying to go directly after what you're after, get your fingers out, that that mesh tube contracts. The tighter you pull, the tighter that gets around your fingers. You cannot actually get your fingers out by pulling your fingers directly out counter-intuitively, you've got to do the opposite. To get your fingers out of that trap, you've got to actually push your fingers together. That's not what I'm after. I'm not trying to get my fingers together. I'm trying to get them out of the trap. Yes, but the first thing you must do is do the opposite. You must push your fingers together, which loosens the trap, and then you've, you know, you've got to use your thumbs, and it, the analogy breaks down. The point is you've got to work against your inclinations to get the big thing that you're after. In the same way, if you are pursuing life directly to the lowercase living that we all do in our day-to-day lives in this world, you will never find it. You've got to do the opposite. Jesus says the only way that you can have life is to lay down your life. The only way you can have capital L, abundant, satisfying life, is by laying down your lowercase, day-to-day, ordinary, in this world lives right now. So all of this raises a question. What then does Jesus think we should do with our lives? It sounds like Jesus is saying that we should just waste our lives, that our lives are unimportant, that they are insignificant, that the things that we do with our lives are an utter waste of our time, our energy, and our efforts. And Jesus isn't saying that, and he's very clear in the next verse, that that's not what he is talking about. Rather, he is saying that a life given over to the pursuits of this world is what wastes our lives. So if you thought Jesus didn't care about your life by asking you to die, this next section sets us straight. Number two, Jesus talks about treasuring our lives, treasuring our lives. In verse 26, we come to the second for clause, the second explanatory word. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Your translation there for soul, depending on what you're using, may have the, uh, the word life there. It's because this idea of our soul is very closely connected to our life. You can go back and forth. Uh, to save your life, is to save your soul. To lose your life is to forfeit your soul. Now, what Jesus is doing is talking about a trade-off that we often do not think about. Again, when we are pursuing capital L life through the pursuits of living in this world, we don't often think that we might be barking up the wrong tree. Jesus is actually asking us to stop a moment and think about the exchange we're making. If you were to gain the whole world, whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that you're after, if you were to get to the end of the rainbow, if you were to find that pot of gold, would it be worth losing your soul over? Now you say, well, isn't that where I find my life? Isn't that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Isn't that where I'm actually finding joy and satisfaction? Jesus says, suppose that you actually get what you're after. Is it worth exchanging your soul to possess. Now, it's a surprising implication because, again, Jesus has told us that we must die, but now we realize that he's actually seeking to protect our lives, to preserve our lives, to guard our lives. He who keeps you will not slumber nor sleep, as we sang about in Psalm 121 earlier. He watches over us. And he's watching over us right now by warning us against what we will gain if we gain the whole world. Namely, we won't gain the whole world, we will forfeit our souls in the process. You see, in in our natural state, our natural inclinations is that we just buy, we just believe this fallacy of self-protection. I don't want to die, therefore I'm going to pursue life in this world. And Jesus is saying, this is actually the inclination, the orientation that we must deny in ourselves. This is what must be crucified, what must die, if we are to find life. Counterintuitively, Jesus is not asking us to die to capital L life. He is asking us to die to death so that we might truly live. If you followed the news this week, um, you may have heard about a a very famous man who who died, a man who came closer than really any of us will in this world to having it all. A man named Matthew Perry, um, he played uh, the character Chandler on the television show Friends. He died in his 50s um, after having starred in one of the most famous popular television shows uh, that was ever made. If you know anything about the life of Matthew Perry, he suffered in a number of ways, not poverty, things like that. But he suffered because he realized that having the whole world was not enough. At one point he wrote this. He says, I was convinced fame was the answer. I was 25 on Friends, and I realized the American dream was not making me happy, not filling the holes in my life. Fame does not do what you think it is going to do. It was all a trick. Now the tragedy of the story of Matthew Perry is though he got 50% of what Jesus is talking about true aright. right. He understood that pursuing capital L life at the end of the rainbow in living and pursuing everything that you might pursue in this world will never satisfy you. It's all a trick, he says. Nevertheless, there's no evidence of which I am aware that he ever found the secret of what would make him happy, of life through faith in Jesus Christ, of dying to oneself so that one might have Jesus. And that's an incredible tragedy. But this is a man who had and came closer to possessing the world than any of us ever will, and it wasn't satisfying for him. What about you? I feel like I'm on pretty good grounds to say that none of you in this room will ever come close to possessing a sliver of the world that Matthew Perry possessed. And if what he had wasn't enough, why do you think that what you are pursuing will make you satisfied, will make you happy, will give you capital L life if you get to the end of the rainbow? So far, Jesus is still dealing in the abstract. First, he made an abstract promise. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then he made an abstract trade-off. What if you gained the whole world but forfeited your soul? What do you actually gain? Well, in this final section, Jesus is going to make the abstract concrete. He's going to talk specifically about why all this matters. Uh, the concrete point in time, in human sp- history, where all of this is going to come clear. It's when Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, will come again to judge the world and to establish his kingdom forever. And so here we come to the third point, tasting the kingdom in verses 27 through 28. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to say, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is the third four clause, the third explanation of why we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. It's because, on the one hand, Jesus is giving us a warning, a warning that judgment is coming for the wicked. But on the other hand, what Jesus says here is also a promise, a promise that when the Son of Man comes, he will vindicate the righteous. Jesus is coming as the Son of Man. And he's coming with his angels in the glory of his Father as a final judge. Namely, to judge every person for what that person has done. Now here we encounter a real question. What is Jesus saying? What is our hope here? Is it that we have to do enough good things in order to be saved? And if you've been with us through this study of the Gospel of Matthew, or if you've read the rest of it, or are familiar with the rest of your Bibles, you know that What Jesus is acknowledging is that all of us will be judged on the basis of what we have done, but that all of us judged according to what we have done are utter failures. Everyone will be judged on the basis of what we have done, but none of us have possibly, could possibly, do enough to earn salvation from Jesus. So there's a real warning here if you were trusting in what you and you alone have done, there's no hope there. The standards of God are perfect, infinitely high as heaven righteousness. Matthew 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Have you reached that standard? If not, when the Son of Man comes in his angels in the glory of his Father, you stand condemned, and there's nothing you can do about it. But what the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, the rest of what the Bible is showing, is that even though we stand condemned, God has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. Namely, He sent His Son Jesus Christ, this very Jesus who is speaking, the same Son of Man who, came, who will come as a judge, came this first time as a Savior, as the mediator of a new covenant enacted on better promises as the one who would be judged in our place for our sins. What Jesus is talking about is coming in the future. He's foreshadowing what he was going to do, the reason that he must suffer many things and die on the cross. It's because he was in advance of the judgment that is coming then. In that time, he came to take your judgment away, to die in your place, to suffer for your sins. All of this, Jesus is speaking about in veiled ways. He's just starting to unfold these things to his disciples. But he's showing them that the concrete reality is one day the Son of Man is coming, and you better figure this out before he does. Or when he does, if you are left holding only the bag of your unrighteous deeds, you don't have a prayer. You don't have a hope outside of Jesus Christ. What Jesus goes on in verse 28 is then to set up what he's going to keep talking about and going to continue talking about through the rest of this gospel. Again, this is the continental divide. Jesus has been sort of ascending the mountain on one side, and now he's going to go down the mountain on the other side, figuratively speaking. In verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this is a very difficult verse, very controversial. It's been interpreted a number of different ways. Some would go so far as to say, well, here is an example of Jesus making a mistake, clearly not omniscient, not knowing everything. Maybe here Jesus is saying that he thought that his return would come during the lifetimes of his original disciples. Well, that's clearly not what Jesus is doing. Others have thrown out all kinds of other ideas. Maybe this return, the coming of the Son of Man in His kingdom, refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And I think there's some truth to that. Maybe this refers to the resurrection of Jesus. I think there's some truth to that. Maybe this refers to the ascension of Jesus into the heaven, in the heavens at the right hand of His Father. There's some truth to that. Maybe this refers to when Jesus pours out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Again, some truth there. Maybe this is referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of time. And again, there's some truth there. We're going to keep talking about this idea next week, but I want to give you a couple of things to think about. I think probably the best interpretations of this, uh, one of them comes from a man named Hendrickson, William Hendrickson. Uh, Other people have expressed this idea as well, but I think he expresses it uh, the best of what I read. He talks about a prophetic foreshortening. Um, The idea of a prophetic foreshortening is to think about all of the prophecies and to understand that their depth is somewhat foreshortened. If you've ever driven to the Rocky Mountains and you're driving from, from here to Colorado and you're looking and there's some point where off in the distance, depending on how clear it is on that particular day, where suddenly into view burst the mountains. You couldn't see it and now you can see it. And what does it look like? It looks like there's just one single row of mountains off on the horizon, off in the distance. As you get closer, you realize that what you thought was just one thing, one line, one row of mountains, actually ends up being a huge interrelated set of mountains. And the one you thought was right next to the other are, in fact, separated by tens and hundreds of miles. And you have to go through up and down and around. And and through all of these different mountain systems, as you're working your way through the mountains, what you thought was one thing was actually a very deep kind of a thing. And in the same way, when we're talking about the coming of the Son of Man in His kingdom, Jesus can talk about that as one thing, and the Old Testament prophets talked about it as one thing often, but it really refers a depth, to a, a depth of range of events. It refers to the resurrection, or it refers to the ascension, or it refers to the day of Pentecost, it refers to Jesus Christ's second return, but it talks about them as one thing. And so there's a depth that what Jesus is talking about, Is coming up in this particular passage. But what I think is also true, and several commentators point this out, is that what Jesus says that some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom, seems to anticipate what happens next in the gospel of Matthew in some ways. That after six days, Jesus took some of them, Peter, James, and John, and led them up onto a high mountain where he was transfigured. Now we'll talk about this Lord-willing next week. But in that transfiguration where they saw his glory, they are seeing a snapshot, a manifested foreshortening of everything in Jesus's entire exaltation. He's giving his glimpse to some of these disciples before they lose their lives. We'll talk about that more as we go, about what is all involved in the exaltation of Jesus, that just as Jesus must suffer, so also must he be exalted. Well, the application of this passage is this. Die to yourself in order to find life in Christ. Again, we enter Jesus' kingdom through Jesus' cross, and Jesus is telling us that we must die to ourselves in order to find life in him. Now, I want to speak to three groups of people who might be here today. I want to speak to those of you who are perhaps in that state that Matthew Perry found himself often in life. Despairing of life. This can't be all there is to it, is there? This has to be a trick because I have pursued every avenue I can think of to be happy, and yet I am miserable. If you despair of life, you're 50% correct. You're half right. This life, lowercase l living, cannot provide the capital L abundant, satisfying life that we are seeking. Of course it's going to lead to despair. The this frustration that we can't make this life work. We can never make this life work that well. But the reason you're only partially right is because you have missed what Jesus is offering here. He's not asking you, well, just hang it up, give up. What you need to do is just die and let this world pass away from you. No, he's not telling you to die to the pursuit of life. He's saying, die to your pursuit of life to embrace His gift of life to the cross. You may have missed joy, not because you haven't pursued it, but because you have pursued it wrongly through whatever seems right to you in the moment. Whatever you have lost, wherever you are suffering, however you may despair, the promise of Jesus is that you really can have life in Him, but to gain it, you must die the pursuit of finding life in this world but the promise that Jesus holds out is that when the son of man comes in his kingdom with his angels in the glory of his father on that day he promises to restore and heal all that you have lost and far more than you could think or imagine the second group to those of you who are clinging to desire for worldly comfort worldly pleasure worldly ease, to those of you who are holding the cross of Christ at arm's length, understand that you have been duped by the fallacy of spiritual self-protection. Jesus warns you here that you are trading your everlasting soul for the world, and he is asking you to consider, is it worth it? You're not going to gain all the world. You're going to gain the tiniest sliver of it, but even if you gained everything, would it be worth it? What is worth in exchange for your soul? What do you hope to gain from all this? And more importantly, what do you stand to lose? The Son of Man is coming in his kingdom. Are you fortifying your anthill kingdom? Is your life busy like a little ant scurrying about grabbing all those grains of sand where just some petulant eight-year-old can come and stomp it at a moment's notice? Understand, that day is coming one way or another. All that you have gathered is nothing more than an anthill that will be swept away in the changing of the seasons. Or again, the cruelty of people. What you were looking for cannot be found in this life. What you must do is not seek it in this life, but to find refuge in the kingdom of Jesus Christ so that when he comes, you will not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you've never trusted in Christ this morning, oh, I plead with you, do so today. The third group, for those of you who are looking to Christ and who are suffering, you need to hear the words that we sang a little bit earlier. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Do you understand? Jesus is coming. He is coming. The Son of Man is coming and His kingdom. And on that day, those of you who have been looking to Him, who have been faithfully looking to Jesus, will not be put to shame. Jesus is offering you his promises. This doesn't hang over you as a threat if you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is showing you the meaning of your suffering, the significance of your suffering. That in the difficulties and the pain and the suffering of life, for Jesus' sake, there is capital L life. The world doesn't see it that way. The world says, what are you doing? The world says, you can't find life in death. And Jesus says, not so fast, my friend. There is life in him. Today is actually the day of international prayer for the persecuted church. I'd encourage you to go to the website of Voice of the Martyrs and read about ways in which our brothers and sisters around the world are plunged into suffering, surrounded by it day in and day out. For Jesus' sake, we need to hear the voices of our brothers and sisters who are persecuted to give us confidence, to give us hope, to give us strength for whatever we face in our lives. We need to read the history of the church to hear about those who have been brutalized and beaten and burned and torn apart by wild beasts and who have been hated and reviled in their lives for the sake of Christ. We need to hear that. Why? So that we might have courage. Courage, dear heart. Courage. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The promise of the gospel of Jesus is that the Son of Man is coming in His kingdom. And the promise of the hope of the gospel is that for all those who follow Him, you will not be put to shame. You have not died to your life if you are in Christ. You have died in order to gain Christ's life. And what is it worth exchanging for Christ's life? It's worth everything. Courage, dear heart. Hold fast as you follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed give us Jesus. Father, we are recognizing that we are so weak, that we are so fearful, so skittish, so worried about protecting ourselves that we foolishly give ourselves over to all kinds of methods to try to squeeze a little bit of life, capital L life, out of this world and it can't be done. Give us courage, Father, we pray to hear and to believe Jesus, our Lord, to boldly lay down our lives for Christ's sake in order that we might find capital L, abundant, satisfying, eternal life in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.